How are we doing this morning, Sound City? Are we good? All right. It's good to see you. For any of you who have not yet met, my name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. We have been, as a church, going through the book of Hebrews uh, with a few short breaks here and there for one full year. And we've got, after today, nine more sermons left in the book of Hebrews. We are in chapter 12. And I want to give you a little bit of context uh, real briefly before we dive in, and then I'll give you more context, actually, as we're going in. The book of Hebrews is an anonymous letter. We don't know who wrote it, as far as the human author is, but we know that all scripture comes from God, and so uh, we, we, we know that it's from him, it's breathed out by God. We also see that this letter, even though we call it a letter, it was originally a sermon. It was a sermon that a preacher preached. It was written down, turned into a letter, and then passed around to a lot of churches in the ancient world. And uh, so we called the sermon series The Sermon God Wrote because we don't know who the human author is. And as we get to the end of this book, it's starting to get really compact. You know, like a good preacher, he's kind of upping his speed at the end of the sermon. And so there is a lot. We're only going to address six verses today, but there are probably eight or ten different sermons that could be preached. And so I'll just simply say, if, if you're a note taker, today is a great day for you. Make sure you kind of limber up your wrists a little bit and get ready to take some notes. If you like notes to um, follow along with, they are up on the church's website right now under the sermon section. You can get there, uh, get the notes, and, and can kind of follow along with the outline that way. But a lot of material to cover today. And so what I want to do is I want to read I'm going to pray. And as we're praying, I just have a request. Would you pray for me? Um, I just got done preaching this at the 9 a.m. service, and I'll just tell you, it's a weighty sermon. There's a lot of material to cover, and there's a lot of weight to it. And so I would just ask you to pray for me that I'd be able to uh, teach you that which is true. So let's read, we'll pray, and we'll spend some time unpacking these verses together. Verse 12. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble and by it many become defiled. And that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he saw it with tears. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray together. God, we are so thankful that you have given us the scriptures Um, not just to teach us how to live or to instruct us, but to show us who you are and to show us what you have done, uh, to show us your love, to save us, to draw us into right relationship with you. God, I pray for all of us here today. Would you send the Holy Spirit to bring these words to life in our hearts and in our minds? We thank you that we don't uh, serve a, a dead religious founder, but we serve a living and resurrected Savior. We thank you that these words are living and active, and so we pray that you would cause them to be living and active in our hearts today. Guard my lips, help me to only teach that which is in line with the truth of your word, and give us all soft and teachable hearts that we might receive what it is that we need to receive from you. We pray this all in Jesus' good name. And everyone says, amen. This week, uh, my family, we, we took a, a camping trip. We were away for three nights. And so I was sitting um, kind of outside of our campsite. I'm working on this passage and working on the sermon this week and just enjoying nature. And it was kind of a, a relaxing and restful time to, to prep a sermon. And Erin Lynn kind of poked her head out of the, the camper and goes, you know, hey, how's the, how's the sermon prep going? And I said, man, it is just, it is a laundry list of commands this week. And then I kind of trailed off for a minute. And I was like, what's a laundry list? And she's like, I don't know, look it up. You're holding the computer. I'm like, fair point, but we're in the mountains. I don't have any internet. And so she's like, well, I think it's, it's probably, you know, like a list for people to know how to do your laundry. I was like, you're probably right. And so then I got back and I looked it up and surprise, yes, it's a list for people to know how to do your laundry. That was the big realization for me. Actually, think about 
uh, in previous generations, you didn't have a washer and dryer in your home and different clothes, they weren't all as resilient to fabrics as we had, so you had to make sure that things were done properly. You had to make sure that certain shirts were washed a certain way. You had to make sure that certain pants were pressed a certain way. And so you'd give this detailed list of things to do. Now, I think that when you or I are given a laundry list, I think there's a variety of ways that you or I might tend to respond. So don't raise your hand and don't elbow your spouse, but some of you, when you're given a laundry list, your reaction is to be overwhelmed. You think, oh, this is too much. I'll never be able to accomplish it. You start to have doubt. You start maybe to have a little bit of self-pity. Maybe you get a little bit whiny. Maybe you get a little bit complainy. This is just too much. You're afraid of failure. You're overwhelmed. Others of you, when you're given a laundry list, your natural reaction is to do exactly the opposite of what was given to you, right? Some of our more rebellious brothers and sisters here today, you're like, I don't know what I'm doing today, but it's not whatever you just told me to do. I'm gonna go over here and do this other thing, right? Again, nobody elbow your spouse. Nobody, nobody has to out themselves, but, but some of you are more on that rebellious side of things. Others of you, and you might be the worst of all, uh, others of you, you see a laundry list like this and you go, I got this. <laughs> I have no no possibility of doing anything other than succeeding. This is going to go perfectly, right? And you're full of pride and over self-confidence and you just need to repent because you're wicked, right? So, so we, have, we have these different responses when we see a list like this. Now, now, friends, the Bible is full of all sorts of instructions, yes. And sometimes even preachers or, or Christians will talk about, you know, the, the Bible is God's rule book for life, but I really don't like that designation because what it does is it turns it into an instruction manual instead of a book about God showing us who he is and what he has like and what he has done to save us. And, and really, we, we need to understand how to read a laundry list of instructions like this properly. And so let me just say from the beginning, here's the big idea of what we're going to see in the passage today. Here's, here's what I really hope you walk away. It's this. The more that we understand the gospel and the more that we rejoice in the gospel, the more we will want to joyfully obey God even when it seems difficult or uncomfortable. The more that we understand the gospel, the more we understand the truth about what God has done for us, the more we will want to joyfully respond to God in obedience, yes, even when it seems difficult or unpleasant or uncomfortable. And so in order to see this, we're going to look at a couple of things. We're going to look at the difference between truths and commands, and then we're going to look at some commands for us as individuals, and then we're going to look at some commands for us as a community. So truth and commands, commands for self, commands for community. And I'm going to start back in verse 12 with one word, therefore, okay? Uh, if I go this slow the whole time, the sermon would be four hours long. I promise you I won't. But I, I, it's really important that we camp out on this word for a minute. So did you notice when we were reading the passage at the beginning that it was just instruction after instruction after instruction after command after command after command? It is easy to focus on those commands and miss this incredibly important word, therefore. Some of you have heard when Pastor Shane preaches uh, the, the little saying that he picked up when he was in seminary like 100 years ago. I'm just kidding. But he, he always says, when you see the word therefore, you have to ask the question, what's it there for? This is not a junk word. This is an important word. What the author of Hebrews is telling us is that these commands are grounded in something. We've heard something previously that give context to and give uh, uh, shaping to and give even inspiration to all these commands that are going to follow. When you look at the book of Hebrews, we've been kind of in this unit since about chapter 11 that's really talked about faith. We've heard all sorts of things. We've heard that it's, it's impossible to please God if you don't have faith. You can't please him by your works alone. You have to have faith in God. And the, the, there's a, a long list of examples given of what faith looks like in action. These great men and women throughout the pages of the scripture who demonstrated faith by believing in the promises of God. And then we see uh, at the beginning of chapter 12 that Jesus is the ultimate example of faith. In fact, he's the author and the finisher of our faith. He's the one that had faith all the way to go to the cross to die a death in our place for our sins that we might be forgiven. 
through the work of Jesus, not through our own works and through our own efforts. That's good news, amen? And so we see these amazing truths that he died in our place for our sin. And then we see uh, in the verses we looked at last week that the hardship or the pain that we go through, it's not punishment. If you're a Christian, you're not being punished by God, but we do experience hardship so that God can shape us and form us and grow us and discipline us to look more like Jesus. So in light of all of that, the author of Hebrews says, therefore, now we're gonna talk about how to respond. Now we're gonna talk about some practical ways to live our lives in such a way that makes sense in response to the gospel. And if you're a note taker, write these words down. And even if you're not a note taker, please write these words down. These will be very helpful words for you. And I hope and pray very helpful um, lenses for you to view the Bible. When you read the Bible, I want you to have these lenses on. There's a couple of words I want you to see. The first word is this, indicatives. Indicatives. It's a grammatical term, and it just means something that is a truth claim. It's a statement of fact. It's not a question. It's not a command. It's just simply a statement of fact. So here's a statement of fact. The music of the Beatles changed Western civilization. That's a statement of fact, right? Uh, Bill Gates is an extremely wealthy person. The San Francisco 49ers are going to go 0-16 this year, right? It's just a statement. It's just a statement of fact. I'm not, I'm not, no, actually, that brings up a valid point because we can argue about if it's true or not, but it still is an indicative. It may be true, it may not be true. We can talk about whether or not it's true, but it's a, it's a statement that I put out there as though it were true. The second word I want you to see is an imperative. An imperative is an instruction, those of you who can remember back to grammar school, elementary school, you learned about an imperative sentence. This is a command. I'm telling you to do something. If I tell you to do something, here's, here's a statement of command. Uh, you should listen to the music of the Beatles. You should start a business like Bill Gates. You should never root for the San Francisco 49ers, right? Those are imperative statements, right? These are statements that I'm, I'm telling you to do something. Now, quiz. This is not a rhetorical question. I want, I want you to answer this. The gospel, is it an indicative or is it an imperative? Okay, the, the word gospel. The word gospel. You're used to me trying to do those trick questions to you. So you said both and I appreciate that. But there's actually, there, there is a specific answer for this one. The word gospel is good news. The gospel is an announcement. When you open up a newspaper, you, you, you hear about something that happened. There's an announcement of something that has taken place somewhere in the world. The gospel, the good news is this, that though we, as mankind, have, have chosen to rebel against God, we say we want to live life on our own terms, we want to be our own kings, our own rulers, our own gods, our own lords, even though God could have every right to bring judgment upon us, he has given his son Jesus, his very own precious son Jesus, to die on a cross, to rise again and offer grace and mercy and forgiveness and love and adoption into the family of God for any who would believe. That's the gospel. Can you, can you change that? Can you, can you do that? Can you, is, is anything about the gospel message changed by whether you're having a good day or a bad day? It's not. The gospel, the good news itself, is an indicative, but for those of you who are trying to anticipate my trick question, good for you. The gospel itself is an indicative, but it does then flow into imperatives. It then calls us to respond, right? Here's the gospel. Jesus died. Jesus rose again. You now have an invitation, a call to respond, repent of your sin, place your faith in Jesus and start following him for the rest of your life. This is the third thing. If you're taking notes, write this down. Write this down. Indicatives will flow into imperatives or imperatives will follow indicatives or, or commands have to be grounded in truth statements. Commands have to be grounded in truth statements. Otherwise, they just fizzle out. How many of you, it's, what is today? September 4th. How many of you made New Year's resolutions this year that you're still keeping? There's one, 
two, and I'm suspect of you, but I believe you. Okay, so you, you, how many of you have ever had that experience where you made a New Year's resolution and within like a week you were just done with it, right? See, we're not very good with commands, just bare commands by themselves. We have to know why. We have to have a compelling reason. We have to have a compelling, motivating force to make us want to then do something. You can't tell me what to do unless I have a real reason. And actually, it's, it's true with the gospel. Please don't tell me. Please don't tell yourself. Please don't tell others what to do until you have first told yourself or told others about what Jesus has done for us. Don't tell me what to do until you've told me about what Jesus has done. That's a really important principle to live by. That's a really important set of lenses through which to view the scriptures. I hope and pray that this, if you've not heard this before, I hope and pray that this is shaping for you, formative for you, so that when you look at the Bible, when you read the Bible, you're able to differentiate, is this a truth? Is this just an indicative, something that's true no matter what I do or don't do? God's a loving father, Jesus died for us, or is this now something I'm supposed to do in response? And may we always seek to get that order right. If we mess up the order, that turns into something that we call salvation by works. You're trying to obey, you're trying to do good things in order to impress God. You're trying to obey, you're trying to do good works in order to earn God's love or to earn salvation. But when you realize that you already have God's love, you've already been given salvation through the finished work of Jesus, well, that changes your motivation to want to obey, doesn't it? It moves you out of the realm of fear and insecurity and into the realm of joy and obedience and just loving response to a good God. And, and you, by the way, this is a side note, but it's an important side note. This is why those of us who are Christians should not be shocked or outraged when non-Christians don't act like Christians. Can I just say that? Um, you know, in, in this current political season, there's a lot of discussion going around about laws and how we treat the poor and how we have racial reconciliation and how we treat immigrants. And there's all sorts of very important and very necessary conversations happening in our country. But, but for those of you who are Christians, you need to understand that people who are not Christians aren't going to act like Christians. And we can't just get them to act like Christians by saying Christian things louder and stronger, right? It's like the tourism thing, right? You go to a different country, and Americans, sometimes we think we can get you, uh, you know, foreigner to understand just by yelling louder, right? You, you can't do that. It doesn't work in tourism. It doesn't work in the Christian experience. And, and this might be particularly tough for some of you who are, you're truth tellers, right? Any of you truth tellers, you like to tell it like it is, like to be a straight shooter? I mean, I'm a preacher for crying out loud. I love to speak truth and tell it like it is. But you can't just truth somebody into acting right. It takes a miracle of God. It takes a miracle of the Holy Spirit. Jesus told Nicodemus in the Gospel of John, he says, this whole thing, it's not born of the will of man or the will of the flesh. It's only born of God. It's only when God has done this miracle that the desire to even want to obey God starts to come into play. I was reading a book this last week and author Zach Eswine had something that was, I felt like pretty profound and pretty convicting for me. And so I'll just share this with you. It says this, one of the first signs that we are approaching the borders of attempting omnipotence is this. We believe that another is choosing a course of action because he or she simply isn't clear on what is right. Therefore, we believe if we just work hard enough to explain what is right, then he or she will obviously and immediately do the right thing. No one was more plain, true, reasonable, and clear than Jesus, and they crucified him. Yes, clarity matters a great deal, but clarity can't always solve or fix the broken things. It takes a miraculous work of God. Once that big miraculous work of God has taken place, where we're saved, we're regenerated, well, then this ongoing miraculous work starts to happen, where you find yourself wanting to do what God wants for your life. Not out of a place of fear, not out of a place of trying to earn anything, but actually out of a place of joyful obedience. I think of passages like 1 John 5, where the apostle John says that the Lord's commandments are not burdensome. No, in our flesh, the Lord's commandments are impossible. 
We can't keep all of God's commandments on our own strength, but the more that God does this miraculous work in us, the more we find, you know, his, you know, his commandments are not burdensome. Or, or we start to sound like the psalmist in Psalm 40 where he says, I delight to do your will, O Lord. Your law is written within me. Friends, God is very interested in your joy. Did you know that? God is interested in joyful obedience, not begrudging obedience. For those of you who are parents, I've used this analogy before, but, but if you give your kids an instruction, are you just filled with delight when they're like, fine, and then they go do it? Like, you're, man, this is why I became a parent in the first place, right? Well, the same is true with God. God is, God's not interested in our begrudging, half-hearted, head-hanging, feet-slouched obedience. He's, he's interested in our joyful obedience, and when he calls us to obedience, we have to remember his commands are always rooted in the truths about who he is, and what he has done for us in Christ Jesus. You track with me, Sound City? All that is in one word, therefore, okay? That is the most exegesis I've ever done on one word in my entire life, but I hope that it's, it's, it's formative for you, and, and I sincerely mean this. If you take away nothing else from the remainder of the passage, take away this framework. The commands of God are always rooted in the truths of God's love and his activity for us in Jesus Christ. If you remember nothing else, that said, I'm going to talk a lot more. So here we go. Verse 12. Let's go back and let's look at this. There's going to be some instructions given for us as individuals. There's really going to be three instructions for us as individuals and then three instructions given for us as community. And, and here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to talk about each one of these instructions briefly. But what I want to do is I hope to show you how each of these commandments, each of these instructions are actually rooted and grounded in the gospel. So follow along with me as we go through. It says this in verse 12, therefore lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is uh, lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. Uh, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Okay, there are three commandments given in there and I'm gonna summarize the first one as this. Watch your walk. Watch your walk. In this passage, the author of Hebrews is quoting from Isaiah, strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. And then he actually quotes from Proverbs, make level paths for your feet and take only the ways that are firm. He's quoting from various Old Testament passages. He's using that same athletic imagery that we saw from a few weeks ago. You guys remember that when we saw the whole imagery of competing and running a race and that when you finish the race, you receive the crown as a, as a competitor? He's, he's encouraging us in that same sort of metaphor. And, and really, here's what he's saying. Check yourself. Check your footing. Check your steps. Walk with intentionality. Make sure that, that what happens is, is you, you don't have weak knees and drooping hands and then you put, your, put yourself out of joint. How many of you have ever taken a wrong step? Maybe you didn't see there was a curb there and you twisted your ankle. Anybody ever had that experience? This is what he's talking about. You're, you're, you're running a race. The Christian life is a marathon. Make straight paths for your feet. Be careful how you walk, not as unwise but wise. I mentioned this week that we had a great opportunity to take a family camping trip. We went to a place out in eastern Washington called Steamboat Rock. Anybody ever been to Steamboat Rock? So I got a picture of it here. So this is, this is Steamboat Rock. Can you throw that, uh, that picture up there? So what this is, is this is a... Uh, a wind-carved and I think a glacial runoff-carved rock. It's a mile and a half trail up to the top, 800 feet of elevation change. And I thought to myself, you know what would be a great idea? Taking five young children up this mountain. And so on Wednesday morning, uh, on the lack of sleep due to camping, I decided, my wife and I, that we're going to take our five children up the side of this mountain. We got about halfway up, and it was, it was, it wasn't totally treacherous, but it was not totally untreacherous either. And there was definitely rocks that were like falling down, like duck, you know, that kind of a thing. And so uh, about halfway up, my wife wisely decided to take our youngest and then the two oldest tapped out because they had some injuries. They were nursing or whatever. And so the five and the six-year-old said, we want to keep going. And I said, totally. And so I, by myself, 
took the five and the six-year-old up to the very tippy top of the mountain. They made it all the way to the top. Can you show the next picture there? That's, I'm so proud of them. They really did it. And what you can't really tell is that little kind of ridge that they're standing on is like a 40-foot drop-off right behind them. And I didn't show that picture to my wife until a little bit later. But then we, we got up there. We had a granola bar. Everything is happy. And then I remembered the awful truth about hiking, which is it is so much harder going back down than it is going up, especially with young children as the saying goes. I don't know. Uh, we're going down, and the kids are starting to slip, and there's rocks going, and so we started singing this little song, and I don't remember exactly the melody or even the words, but it basically had something to do with every step, a careful step. Because I knew, as we're going down this mountain, one wrong step, and I'm going to have a less pleasant camping trip for the rest of the time together here. We made it down injury-free. The kids were very careful. I'm very proud of them. They did a great job. Friends, for you, walking through this Christian life, do you check yourself? Do you run a self-assessment? Are you honest about your weaknesses? Do you know where you're prone to wander, as we just sang in the, the song a minute ago? Are you, are you honest? Are you honest with others in your life? When you check yourself, do you, do you share those weaknesses and those flaws? You know, maybe for some of you it's a temper or some of you are prone to laziness or some of you are prone to drunkenness. Whatever, whatever it might be, it could be a thousand different things, but have you checked yourself? Have you walked carefully? And friends, here's, the, here's how this connects to the gospel. Jesus died on the cross and that shows us ourselves in full transparency. We don't get to hide. The gospel exposes all, Amen. But if God has loved us, even though he knows every single thing about us, every flaw, every fault, every failure, and yet he still gave his only son, Jesus, to die for us, then we can be honest with ourselves. We can be transparent with others about the areas where we're prone to wander. Amen? That's how this command is rooted in the gospel. Let's keep going. Number two, it says, strive for peace with everyone. Strive for peace with everyone. Let me just say, uh, this is not false peace, okay? Oh, you know, I haven't fought with my relatives in, you know, forever. When was the last time you talked to them? 13 years ago? Okay, that's, that's false peace. That's conflict avoidance. That's, you know, burying your head in the sand and saying, ah, you know, what problem? There is no issue to deal with. No, that's not Christian peace. That's false peace, Sometimes in our society, in our culture, we, we settle for tolerance. We call that type of peace tolerance, where you think about the word tolerate, like it still means that you're bugged, but you're just going to put up with them and not complain too much, right? I mean, what a, what a garbage goal to shoot for. In Christ, we can actually shoot for peace. Genuine unity, genuine reconciliation, genuine peace. I think about the honesty that the author shows here. What does he say? What's the, what's the action verb that he uses? What, what does he say? Strive for peace. Anybody ever found that having peace with those that you're close to can be difficult? Show of hands, anybody? You ever had conflict in church, in community group, with other Christians? <gasps> right? Strive for peace. It's going to be work. It's going to take some work. It's not going to be pleasant. It's not going to be easy. I think of the Apostle Paul in Romans. He says, as far as it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. The Apostle Paul is also realistic. You know, sometimes you're not going to be able to live at peace with this person. Especially in the, in the case of like an abusive relationship, you might need some distance. But if there's any possibility, so far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. You know, our culture is engaged right now in all sorts of conversations about peace. Uh, I, don't, I don't mean to sound like a conspiracy theorist, but there are a lot of people who make a lot of money off of a lot of people's outrage and division. And we buy into it. We play into it. We get outraged. We click on articles. We share articles. We're, you know, frothing at the mouth. The culture is trying to have conversations about how to have peace, racial peace. Racial, political peace, socioeconomic peace. How are we going to have unity? How are we going to not have division? How are we going to have peace? I'm thankful for anyone and everyone in our culture who, who wants to have those types of conversations. But friends, 
the Bible tells me that the only hope we really have for lasting peace is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because here's the deal. Here's the gospel connection. God, through the work of his son Jesus, broke down the dividing wall of enmity between us and God, us rebellious sinners and a holy and righteous God. If God could knock down that wall of division, what other walls of division could possibly stand a chance? Amen? What do you have that's so, so uh, painful, so uh, insidious, so harmful, so wrong that you can't actually forgive? If God in Christ forgave you of all of your sins, of all of your trespasses, what is it that you could possibly hold on to to keep you divided from somebody else? Some of you have divisions and you are okay with it and you've lost sight of the gospel that God has forgiven all of our sins, all of our trespasses. You've lost sight of the truth that what you have done to God is worse than whatever they did to you. I'm not saying it didn't hurt. I'm not saying it wasn't a real offense. I'm not trying to diminish your pain or to to make an excuse for the behavior of someone else, but I am saying that what you've done to God is always far greater because he's perfect than what somebody else has done to you. And so, in the words of the great theologian, Elsa the princess, let it go. (laughs) If God could knock down the wall of division and enmity between himself and rebellious sinners like us, then what possible issue should remain between us that causes division? Amen? That's the gospel connection. That's how you're going to live at peace with everyone. This isn't some wishy-washy tolerance. This isn't some sort of band-aid. It's deep peace. One more. Strive for holiness. Strive for holiness, the holiness without which no one will see God. Here, the author of Hebrews is drawing on what Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Now remember, again, the gospel says that we are justified, we're declared to be righteous in the sight of God based on Jesus' perfect work. By the way, only Jesus lived up to this laundry list perfectly. Amen? We've all fallen short in many ways. Jesus didn't. Jesus did all of this perfectly. And now, if you're a Christian, if you've placed yourself in Christ, God looks at you through the lens of his son, Jesus. God looks at you with all of the love and affection that he has for his son, Jesus. So you are positionally righteous. You are positionally holy. Then what God does is throughout the remainder of your life is he brings that more and more into reality in a practical sense. So, how many of you are thankful that you're not the same person that you were five years ago? How many of you are thankful that your spouse is not the same person that they were five years ago, right? We're all works in progress. One of our deep values as a church is progress, not perfectionism. Our perfection is in Christ, and we know that he's working in us to grow us and change us. Some of you, that word holiness might be a loaded word because for you growing up, maybe in certain church traditions, holiness just meant no fun, uh, don't judge the word of God through the lens of your experience. Come to the word of God and see what it says. There's, there's other related words or uh, synonymous type of terms. Christ-likeness, godliness, righteousness, being changed from one degree of glory to another. We all are growing. We all are works in progress. And that's the gospel connection. We've been declared righteous and then now we're free to pursue that which looks more like what God has already spoken of us to be true. Let me just give four brief warnings on holiness because I think it's important. Number one is this. Make sure the holiness that you strive for is actually what God says in his word and not man-made religious rules. Do I get an amen from anybody on that? Uh, Some of you, again, you may have grown up in church contexts where there are all sorts of rules and regulations and things associated with being holy or being a good Christian. Um, You know, I think think of an example of of one church that I had interactions with where the men, it was a rule, you had to wear a necktie to church. And uh, I'm thankful for that because I learned how to tie a necktie and I can actually tie a necktie now. But you know what? I've read the whole Bible a couple of times and uh, nowhere says that men have to wear neckties to church. If you want to wear a necktie to church, God bless you. If you want to wear no necktie to church, if you want to wear a necktie around your head like Rambo to church, God bless you. Do whatever you want. Make sure the holiness that you're striving for is what God says in his word, not man-made rules and religion. Amen? Another warning is this. Don't turn matters of conscience into rigid laws. 
there are certain things that the Bible does identify that are a matter of conscience. Some people within Christian liberty can choose, yes, I'll partake in this, no, I won't partake in this, and it, it is left up to conscience, and we're instructed to not turn conscience into rigid law. So let me give you, I'll give you one example, and that's the subject of alcohol. Uh, there are verses in the Bible that very clearly say that drunkenness and addiction is sin, and God wants his people to not be drunkards. But there are also verses in the Bible that celebrate wine, alcohol. It says wine was given to make the hearts of men glad. It says uh, give strong drink to the one who is perishing to help ease his pain. So there are verses that are, um, you know, promoting alcohol in a good way, and then there are verses that, that guard against alcohol. So some of you choose to drink alcohol, and your conscience allows that, and you're fine with it. That's okay. You have liberty in Christ to drink alcohol as long as you're not getting drunk or being addicted to much wine. Others of you, though, you really have struggled. Maybe it's uh, your personality type. Maybe it's you have been uh, in addiction. And so you, you look at alcohol, you say, if I take one drink, I'm just not going to stop. And so my conscience forbids me from drinking alcohol, and I draw a hard line, and I don't drink any alcohol. Praise God, you have that liberty in Christ as well. What neither side has is the liberty to then pass judgment on the other or to do that which would cause the other to violate their conscience. You tracking with me? We can't turn matters of conscience into rigid laws. However, number three, flip side of that, don't turn God's laws into matters of conscience. Oh, you know, my conscience allows me to do that. Yeah, that one's pretty black and white in the scriptures, bro. You need to knock it off, right? There are some things that God is absolutely clear about in his word. Yes to this, no to that. Do not turn it into a matter of conscience and say that you have liberty in Christ to sin. You do not have freedom to sin in those areas where God has clearly spoken. Amen? And number four, last one, make sure that your pursuit of holiness never causes you to look down on someone else or rob you of compassion. Just because your sin looks different than theirs doesn't mean that you have the right to say, well, thank you, God, that I'm not a disgusting sinner like that person, right? Yes, maybe you don't struggle in certain areas. Maybe God has freed you in certain areas that other people are struggling with. Have a compassionate heart. I think of the parable that Jesus told where two men went to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, a very righteous man. And there was a tax collector. They were just absolutely despised and looked down on in that culture. And the Pharisee prayed, God, thank you that I'm not a tax collector or a sinner like this wicked man. And he stood there and just, his prayer was just full of boasting. The tax collector says he knelt on the ground. He beat his chest. He just said, have mercy on me, God. <laughs> Only one of those men went home justified before God. And Spoiler alert, it wasn't the prideful Pharisee. Can I meddle for a moment? I, I, uh, I see you on Facebook. Uh, be careful accepting my friend request. I, especially in this political season, uh, I have seen a number of people, well-meaning Christians, who have deep convictions politically on, on both sides of the aisle, I've seen people posting things like, basically that border on, thank you God that I'm not a worthless person like that Trump supporter. Or thank you God that I'm not a worthless person like that Clinton supporter. Can I just say that's heartbreaking? Not just for me as a pastor, but to God, that we're casting judgment on each other. I'm striving for holiness and in so doing, I'm gonna look down on the other people who don't agree with me. Friends, that shouldn't be, amen? That shouldn't be. So yes, pursue holiness. Yes, be ruthless with your sin. Yes, seek the face of God because sin separates us from relationship with God. But let's not use our holiness or our growth in godliness as an opportunity to look down on anyone else. So those are the instructions for ourselves. Are we, are we having fun yet? Um, <sighs> Three more instructions for community. And before I even, I mean, let me read these verses. I want to give you a few even just cautionary notes. Instructions for community. See to it that no one, see now we're talking in a corporate context, no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble and by it many become defiled, and that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal, for you know that afterward when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected for he found no chance to repent though he sought it with tears. There's a month's worth of sermons in there. I'm going to deal with it in 10 minutes here. Mm-hmm. I find your lack of faith disturbing, Lori. 
Have faith in Jesus, not in me. Here's a couple of things. I want to say this. When it comes to talking about caring for each other in community, two really important things. Number one, we've got to seek to be loving brothers and sisters, not community watchdogs, okay? Uh, Those of you who are either parents or maybe you're a manager or a boss in a company, you know the difference when somebody comes to you and says, hey, I'm concerned about Johnny. I'm concerned, you know, he's, he's not doing his job. He's not holding up his end of the work he's supposed to do. He's, you know, checking Twitter a lot. You know the difference between that kind of a person versus the one who comes up like, Johnny's been checking Twitter a lot, right? You know that, that joyful, gleeful, gotcha sort of attitude? That's not what we're talking about. We are responsible for those that we're in relationship with. The gospel is not an individualistic thing. We're part of a community. And so we do need to watch out for one another, but we gotta have the right heart. Amen, Sound City? Not watchdogs, not the tattletale kid like, mom, Susie's getting into your makeup. Like that kind of joy and glee that some of you parents have heard in your children, or is that just mine? Um, You know, that's not what we're looking for in the body of Christ. It's genuine love, care, compassion for the well-being of others that would lead us to then want to speak up or to get involved. The second thing is, though, for for those of you in relationship with other Christians in community, you got to be willing to have your blind spots revealed to you. You know why they're called blind spots? Because you can't see them. And by definition, you need someone else to come alongside you and point it out to you. And I actually think these three instructions in particular are areas where we are very often blind. So let's look at them in order. The first one is this, let no one fall away. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. We know that the author of Hebrews is really consistent throughout the whole book from beginning to end. He really wants to make sure that nobody falls away from Jesus. They stay faithful. They make it to the end. Now, we already dealt with the subject of assurance of salvation back in Hebrews chapter 6, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about this other than to say it is my deep conviction that those who are genuinely saved, those who are Christians, cannot and will not fall away. You're going to make it to the end. If you're saved, you're going to make it to the end. But it's also one of my convictions that one of the means of grace that God uses to keep his children faithful to the end is the loving check-ins of other Christian brothers and sisters. Again, not asking for a show of hands, but how many of you have known someone who has walked away from the faith? At one time, they said they loved Jesus. At one time, they said they had experienced the grace of God. But now you look at their life and you're kind of like, I don't really even know if you're actually a Christian or not. Some of you have family members. Some of you have friends. What if God wants to use you to check in with that person? Is it awkward to do that, by the way? Super awkward. Pick up the phone, ask to meet for coffee. Hey, I just, I love you, brother. I I just am concerned. I, I feel like I haven't seen you at church in months. And it seems like you're really posting up a lot of stuff on Facebook about other things besides God and you haven't come to community group and I don't, like, are you really, are you reading your Bible? Are you praying at all? Like, how's your walk with, with the Lord? Are you really staying faithful to him? Are you really pursuing the grace of God? What if God wants to use you in the life of someone else? And here's the gospel connection. If Jesus was willing to leave the comfort of heaven, if Jesus was willing to leave the other 99 sheep and go pursue that one lost and wandering sheep, us, you, me, then how could we turn down his instruction, his command to go and lovingly pursue other brothers and sisters in Christ who might be wandering? Let no one fall away. In tenderness, he sought me, weary and sick with sin, and on his shoulders, he brought me back to his fold again. The New Testament talks about being able to restore someone with a spirit of gentleness. God might want to use you for that. Is it going to be uncomfortable? Yes, bet on it. Deal with it now. It's more uncomfortable than knowing that they wandered away from Jesus and you're not sure about where they stand with him. Number two, see to it that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble and by it many become defiled. All right, warning about a root of bitterness. Warn about bitterness. Let me talk about bitterness for just a minute here. Bitterness, bitterness is death. Bitterness is death. 
Bitterness is a poison. Bitterness is a gangrene. Bitterness, bitterness is like if you get a, a cut and you get dirt and infection and you just don't deal with it, it just rots away. That's what bitterness is like spiritually in your soul. Let me say a few things about bitterness. You need to understand that bitterness, see, bitterness is, is personal. Bitterness is personal. Bitterness, I'll read from a biblical counselor and author named Robert Jones. He says this, bitterness is settled anger. The kind that not merely reacts to someone's offense, but forms a more general and global animosity against the offender himself. Anger responds to an incident. I'm angry about what you did. Bitterness goes deeper to form an attitude, a settled stance or posture against the perpetrator. I'm bitter at you because you are an evil person and the incident becomes almost secondary. Let me just say, bitterness is born out of hurts, wounds, offenses, conflict. And, and what I don't want you to hear me saying is that those hurts don't hurt. What was done against you may have been very painful. What was committed against you may have been very wrong. But if you think that you're going to find healing by burning with bitterness at the person who committed a, a crime or a sin against you, then you're sorely mistaken and you're going to miss out on the true healing that is found in the cross of Jesus Christ. Bitterness is personal. It's not just, oh, something bad happened to me. It's you are someone bad. And I'm now against you. Second thing I want to say about bitterness is this. Bitter people are often the last to realize that they are bitter. Did you see what it said in, in Hebrews? It said, by it, many become defiled. It says the root of bitterness springs up and it causes trouble. Oftentimes, bitter people, that, that word defiled, it's, it's you're slimed, you're made to feel gross, you're made dirty. It's, it's bitter people going around and they're spewing out bitterness all over everyone else. And all the people around them can tell that there's bitterness there, but oftentimes that person themselves are the last to know it. They're the last to recognize that there's bitterness there. It could be bitterness against an ex-spouse, bitterness against parents, bitterness against a former boss, bitterness against uh, an employer, bitterness against a church or a church leader, bitterness against a friend, bitterness against a child. It could be bitterness against God himself because he didn't live up to the expectations that you had for him. Again, I, I'm not saying that those things don't actually hurt, but do you understand that bitterness is like this poison that eats away at you and defiles everyone around you? And I just want to let it sit and be uncomfortable in here for a minute because I think there's probably people right now who, as I'm speaking, you're, you're, you're kind of rationalizing. You have excuses, justifications, why it's okay. You don't understand what they did to me. No, you don't understand how hard it was. You don't understand how painful it was. You're right, I probably don't. Jesus does. Jesus knows. Jesus experienced the greatest hostility that the world could throw at him. And yet what did Jesus do on the cross? Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. There's life to be found there. There's death to be found in holding on to bitterness. Number three, bitterness has no place in the life of a Christian. And this is our gospel connection. A quote from C.S. Lewis. To be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. This is hard. It's perhaps not so hard to forgive a single person a great injury, but to forgive the incessant provocations of daily life, to keep on forgiving the bossy mother-in-law, the bullying husband, the nagging wife, the selfish daughter, the deceitful son. How can we do it? Only, I think, by remembering where we stand, by meaning our words when we say our prayers each night, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those that trespass against us. It's from the Lord's Prayer. We are offered forgiveness on no other terms. To refuse is to refuse God's mercy for ourselves. 
To refuse is to refuse God's mercy. To hold on to bitterness is to say, God, your grace isn't good enough. That's a gospel connection there. That's a hard word. If God forgave the unforgivable in us, then we have no right to hold on to unforgiveness and bitterness toward others. Number three, last one. Guard against sexual immorality. If we weren't having fun already, here we go. Uh, I'm actually going to just briefly comment on this because coming up in chapter 13, we have this uh, idea about God's plan for marriage and sexuality, and so I'm gonna address it at more length then, but let me just simply say this. It says, see to it that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau. The word there for sexually immoral is pornos. Might sound familiar to those of you, even if you don't speak Greek. It's kind of a catch-all junk drawer term that, that means all sorts of sexual behavior that is outside of God's plan. And friends, let me, let me just say, every conversation about sex biblically needs to start with the celebration that God is the one who invented sex. God is the one who created sex. It is not an inherently wrong or sinful or dirty thing. It is a beautiful thing that was given to to a husband and a wife by God himself and it should be delighted in and enjoyed in. But we also need to acknowledge that like, like dynamite, when used properly, it's, it's incredibly powerful, but when used improperly, it's incredibly destructive. I've been a pastor for a little less than a decade and the deepest wounds, the most messy situations that I'm involved in as a pastor in people's lives almost exclusively have to do with someone's sexual sin. They're, they're behaving in a way that doesn't line up with God's plan for marriage and sexuality. Whether that's you grew up in a so-called broken home because there was unfaithfulness, whether a spouse or a former lover cheated on you and you're, you feel like you just had a part of your heart ripped out. This is, this is what I deal with as a pastor. This is what the other elders deal with. As pastors, we, we experience these, uh, these just, just gut-ripped-out pains because we don't follow God's plan for, for human sexuality. And the Bible gives us this, this passage here, gives us this example of Esau. Esau is a bad example to not follow him. It's kind of an interesting thing. Uh, we don't see in the book of Genesis explicitly that Esau was, um, we don't see it explicitly that he was sexually immoral, but we do see a couple of things. Number one, we see that he was a man of very uncontrolled appetites. Remember the story? He's, he's out hunting in the field. He comes back. He's hungry. His twin brother was, was cooking some, some stew. And he says, I'm starving. I'm going to die. Give me a bowl of stew. And, and Jacob, the ever conniving, says, well, I tell you what, if you, uh, if you uh, give me your share of the inheritance, I'll give you this bowl of stew. And Esau goes, what good is an inheritance to me if I'm dead? Take it. Give me the stew. And then he eats it, and he gets swindled out of his birthright. It's a double portion of the inheritance. That's a man of uncontrolled passions, wouldn't you say? I've actually heard this said, you know, men in particular, but I'm sure there's some women who said it, but men like, if I don't have sex right now, I'm gonna die. I'm like, no, you're not. <laughs> Shh. You're gonna explode. It's nonsense. Don't be like Esau. We also see later in life that Esau married someone who was not part of the people of God. He violated God's law to marry a follower of God. So we see that he was uncontrolled in his passions as well. I guess marriage <coughs> and sexuality are given to us in the Bible as a picture for the gospel itself. Here's our gospel connection. That, 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 that Jesus is like a groom and we the people corporately are like a bride. And at the end of time, we're gonna come together in what the, 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 writers of, the writer of Revelation and even the prophets call the marriage feast of the Lamb. It's a, it's a wedding celebration that God and his people are coming together. And our sin is spoken of as spiritual adultery. The prophets, the Old Testament prophets use really strong language. They say things like you've played the whore because of our sinfulness. It, it, it hurts God the way that a cheating wife hurts a husband. But if God is willing to forgive our spiritual adultery, then we can learn how to control our appetites, control our passions, and honor him with our bodies and seek to only have sexuality be expressed in a way that's honoring and pleasing and obedient to him. You hearing that, friends? So much about sex gets talked about wrongly in the church. It, it's starting from this place of no, but instead we need to see what its intended purpose is for. I have more to say about that next month, so mark it in your calendars. 
Okay, we made it. We made it through this really long list. Let me, let me close by saying, first of all, Lori, I only went four minutes too long. Second of all, um, here, as we're going through the list, something may have stood out to you. Maybe it was something for yourself. Yeah, this is an area I really need to grow in, repent of. Maybe this is an area I need to go pursue somebody else, something where they've got a blind spot. Whatever those individual things are, I don't want to be prescriptive. I want to allow the Holy Spirit to do his work. Whatever lodged in your heart, whatever lodged in your mind, I'm asking you to go and pursue that this week. But I want to circle it all the way back around to the beginning again where I said the word therefore is so critical. Please do not leave here feeling like, well, now I have to go obey God under my own strength and he's not mad at me. No, no, that's not what we're saying. Look what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. Look at the grace that's been shown to us. Look how he came to seek and save us. Look at how he loves us, how he delights in us. And let that fuel your joy-filled obedience. If any of you here today are not Christians, I'm begging with you, please don't try to obey any of these commandments until you have first come to Jesus and repented of your sin and placed your faith in him and let him do that work in you where now you start to want to obey him. Don't just walk out here thinking, I got a lot of hard work to do. No, you've got a lot of Jesus to respond to. And that's true for all of us. And so we're gonna enter into a time of response now. The first way we're gonna respond is through the giving of our tithes and offerings. So I'll ask our, uh, our volunteers to begin collecting the offering. Uh, the offering, giving is, is an act of worship. This is a gospel connection. We give not out of duty or obligation. We give because God gave us his very best in his son, Jesus. And so I invite you to give as an act of worship. They're gonna collect the offering from the back. If you want instructions on how to give online or how to text to give, those are up on the screen. We're gonna invite our younger students class in to join us here in a moment so they can participate in this time of response along with us. While they're collecting the offering, while the younger students are making their way in, let me uh, just read a few discussion questions so that we can hopefully have good conversations in our community groups and our homes this week. Number one, how is understanding the difference between indicatives, these things that are true, and the imperatives, these instructions, how is this difference so critical in the life of a Christian? Number two, the gospel is an indicative. How can we Christians sometimes mess up the gospel and turn it into an imperative? Number three, of those three commands given for ourselves, which ones is God wanting you to grow in? So which ones were stirred in your heart? And then of the three commands given in regard to the community, which ones are you most uncomfortable to speak into? Or which ones do you need help from your brothers and sisters? You need to see your blind spots. Uh, I, I hope and pray that we have some lovingly uncomfortable conversations in our community groups this week. We, we need to have these conversations. We don't want to do the conflict avoidance thing. We want to enter in understanding that, that God has made it possible for us to love each other in this way. Number five, read 1 John 5, 3. How does this truth help us to understand God's heart for us in obedience? And a couple things to pray about. Pray that God would help us to more clearly understand the difference between the truth of the gospel and the commands that flow from the gospel. I pray that God would help us as Christians to more clearly explain this difference, especially when we're speaking with those who are not Christians. We're also going to enter into a time of response where we celebrate the Lord's table and the, 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 the volunteers are gonna begin passing out the elements in a moment. I'll just ask you to hold on to those. We'll take this all together. We practice an open table at Sound City, which means if you're a Christian, even if you're visiting from another church, you're welcome to join us. If you're not a Christian, we'd ask you to either abstain or even better, trust in Jesus and join us at the table. But as they're passing this out, let me read from 1 Corinthians 11 that explains what we're about to do and the celebration we're about to enter into. The Apostle Paul writes, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. So let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. We actually saw that, our very first point. Examine yourself. Check your walk. Don't just jump into this celebration of, of eating the bread and drinking the wine. God, Am I obeying you? Am I obeying you from a place of joy? Are there areas in my life where I'm not truly obeying you and you need to, 
to challenge me or discipline me or grow me, examine yourself. And then we're gonna sing. Uh, our, our musicians are gonna lead us in a time of singing and responding to I'm, the, the gospel. I'm thankful that some of these songs they, they pick, they're, they're just full of gospel indicatives. There, there's, a, there's a little bit of imperative, but man, there's a lot of gospel indicatives. So let your voices be heard, church. Let's lift our voices as we sing and celebrate. If you need to sit for a moment and just reflect if, if you need to do some business with the Lord before standing to your feet and singing, I encourage you to do that, but otherwise I'll pray and they'll begin leading us in song and then when you're ready, stand to your feet and, and begin celebrating Jesus with us. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this time. God, we thank you for this challenging word, but I ask and pray that it would be a formative and a shaping word for us. Most importantly of anything, God, I ask and pray that we would not seek to obey you out of just sheer willpower or duty or obligation, but God, we would seek to obey you out of a heart of joyful response to the gospel. We'd seek to obey you in, in these six areas we looked at today and countless others from a foundation of knowing that we have been loved by our heavenly father. We have been saved by our savior Jesus and we've been filled with the Holy Spirit who empowers us to obey. I pray for our time of response now. May it be full of joy. May it be full of your spirit. We pray this all in Jesus' good name. Amen. Church, let's respond as you're ready.